You are now listening to the September 3rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the 12 Apostles of Jesus. Today, we will continue to learn about Apostle Philip. About 5,000 came to listen to Jesus. That was not counting women and children. The scene appears in John chapter 6. Jesus taught the Word of God, which was bread for the soul. At the same time, he was also concerned with bread for the body for the people gathered. So Jesus raised the following question to his disciples. Here is how the situation is described in John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus directed the question to Philip. He asked how all these people could eat. The question was raised to test him. Of course, Jesus knew how Philip would respond. Jesus knows everything. The reason Jesus tested Philip was to help him learn from their current situation. Jesus knew Philip was practical, realistic, and quick with calculations. Jesus wanted him to realize how his natural tendencies are and how he would need to overcome them. By doing so, he could grow in faith. Philip was indeed realistic and quick with calculations as expected. He started to calculate the cost for the food in his head. The sun is setting soon. There are about 10,000 people. How much would it cost to feed all of these people? It looks like we are going to need about 200 denarii. Where are we to get that kind of money? We don't have that kind of money. Maybe we should collect from each person. Still, even that might not be enough. He was done with his calculations and reported back to Jesus. Let's read John chapter 6, verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. 200 denarii was equivalent to about eight months of wage. Philip told Jesus how much was needed and how they could collect at least some of the required money. But Jesus' thoughts were totally different. Jesus proceeded to perform a miracle that can only happen in faith. He proceeded to feed a large crowd, well over 5,000, with five barley loaves and two fish, a child brought for himself. Let's continue on with verses 11 to 13. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, 
gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Jesus had love for the people and showed them the miracle so that they could eat fully to their content, and still there was leftover food that filled twelve baskets. Philip was at the wedding where Jesus turned water into wine. He was at the place of miracle where Jesus healed the sick, so we might say he should have known better. In his defense, the sight of such a large crowd must have been daunting. All those hungry faces looking at him and Jesus asking him to figure out a way to feed them had to have been perhaps nerve-wracking. He did what came natural to him. His human senses kicked in and his faith took the back seat. Later, Jesus and the twelve disciples were sailing in a boat. Jesus had fallen asleep when a storm hit the boat. Frightened, they woke up Jesus screaming, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then Jesus answered them, Where is your faith? In other words, Jesus was telling them, Guys, this is the moment you should use your faith. But where is your faith? The feeding of 5,000 was Jesus' spiritual lesson for Philip. Philip, this is the moment to use your faith. But where is your faith? Why are you calculating and figuring out the solution without me in it? Beloved listeners, I am not saying that faith should be unobjective, unreasonable, or unreal. We must think and calculate reasonably. What I'm saying is that it may take much more than calculating and reasoning if we want to overcome a daunting problem we face. Faith includes allowing a space for God where He can work and we can have hope. Yes, we can think and reason with the wisdom God gives us, but we also have to leave room for God to intercede and help us. Today's second spiritual lesson is to have hope in the might of God and become disciples who live in faith. It has been said that depression stems from the despair about the past and that anxiety comes from the despair about the future. When we calculate our lives without God, there is only depression and anxiety. We fall into depression because scars from the past hurt us, and we experience anxiety because of the fear of potential hardships that may be in our future. There is a very popular gospel song, Waymaker, that is being sung around the world over the last few years. The lyrics go like this. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, healing every heart. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, oh, turning lives around. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, mending every heart. I worship you, I worship you. You are waymaker, miracle worker. Promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Even when I don't see it, you're working. 
Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Beloved listeners, God is indeed moving in our lives. He makes ways, works miracles, keeps promises, becomes the light in the darkness, touches our hearts, heals us, and changes our lives. I hope today's church does not become a worldly gathering or groups that operate based on common sense. Some people might say, Pastor, there are so many churches that don't even have common sense. I wish they would at least have some common sense. God's church is much greater than what some common sense can accomplish. I pray our church can move beyond calculating one plus one is two and two plus two is four. I hope our churches will come to learn that one plus God can be five or ten or even a hundred or a thousand. David makes the following proclamation in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 30. For by you I can run upon a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. If David calculated realistically without God, he could not have run upon a troop or leap over a wall. But David always calculated his life with God in it. That is why he was able to make such a proclamation. Beloved listeners, when our considerations include God who leads our lives, our depressions and anxieties will turn into excitement and hope that the worldly calculations cannot explain. I hope we will all long for the Almighty God and live with Him in faith. We will now conclude today's episode. According to biblical historians, Philip brought the gospel to Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis in Turkey. And his disciples who accepted Jesus through his ministry took the gospel to France. Philip was eventually arrested while he was preaching the gospel in Turkey. He was then punished by stoning to death. He asked for the following as he was about to be stoned. How can I be treated the same as the Lord Jesus? Do not put me in linen clothes like Jesus, but just roll my dead body in the reed mat to bury me. He kept his faith to the end and was martyred. Philip used to be objective and calculating, but from witnessing the feeding of 5,000, he learned the power of Jesus' teaching. He then was able to overcome his natural tendencies of being calculating and became one that saw the world much more than his calculations could ever tell him. He learned to see the world through his spiritual eyes. He kept his hope in God and longed to see him. And he followed the example of Jesus and lived in faith until the last moment. I hope we will all become like Apostle Philip to be able to live in faith and invite those around us by saying, Come and see. This concludes today's episode of the Twelve Apostles of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week.
Jesus calls you, Jesus draws you, rest in Him. He is gentle, He is lowly, He delights to bring us peace. Tender shepherd, mighty Savior, rest in Him. How sure His compassion for us Oh, how deep is His love So come, come to Jesus and rest in Him Are you hopeless? Are you guilty, caught in shame for all your sin? He pursues you to forgive you, rest in Him. He has paid for every failure. Mercy flows in endless streams. Come and follow, freedom calls how sure His compassion for us Oh, how deep is His love So come, come to Jesus and rest in Him
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is the healing touch of Jesus. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 8. Now this particular story is unique on multiple levels. One, no other gospel writer tells this story. Not Matthew, not Luke, not John, only Mark tells us this story. And there are some details in it that are unlike every other time Jesus heals someone in the Bible. And then on a deeper level, this story is not just about a blind man in need of physical sight. It's about people in need of spiritual sight. Now, we don't have time to cover all of that today, so we're going to save that last part for next week, Lord willing, when we see how this story of physical healing relates to you and me and spiritual sight. But today, I just want us to read this story plainly and think together about the healing touch of Jesus. And not just think about it. We're going to pray for the healing touch of Jesus in each other's lives. Based on three characteristics of Jesus, I want to show you in this story that I would encourage you to write down. So start with me in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Let's just read the story and pause along the way to make sure we're understanding what's happening. Imagine the scene. And the disciples came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him, him being Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. Now let's stop here and make sure we understand what's happening. We get the scene. We need to realize that people in this day would have thought certain things about this man because he was blind. And not just people out there, but even Jesus' disciples. What would they have been thinking about this man? Because there's a different story about another blind man in John chapter 9. Listen to how it starts. John chapter 9, verse 1 says, Jesus passed by. He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you see the connection there in people's minds? Blindness was not just a physical disability. It was a spiritual curse. If you were blind, clearly you had done something wrong, maybe even before you were born. This man or his parents that he was born this way. So the common thought in that day was that disability was connected to sin. Disease connected to sin. As a result, the blind and the deaf and the mute and the lame and the leper, they were all outcasts in society, deemed unclean, unworthy, put out of the synagogue. They were untouchable. Pharisees, Sadducees, rabbis, teachers, they wouldn't touch them. So here comes a group of people in Mark chapter 8, with a blind man begging Jesus to do what? To touch him. And here's the first characteristic I want you to see in Jesus today. I want you to see his tender compassion. 
Look at what he does. He doesn't just touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Jesus is doing what no other religious leader would do. He takes him by the hand. Like holding somebody else's hand is a pretty personal thing, right? If you're holding somebody's hand right now, that's probably an indicator of a pretty close relationship. I don't think you sat down next to a stranger today and just like, hey, let's hold hands. If so, that was super bold of you and likely awkward for them. This is a very personal thing. And then to continue holding it as Jesus, picture it, gently guides him through a crowd, around obstacles, helping him know where to step, where not to step, holding him up when he stumbles. And it's worth pausing here to point out that this is how Jesus heals all throughout the Bible, through touch. Turn back with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 1, and I'll have it up here on the screen, but if you have a Bible in front of you, look at it, maybe even underline it, make notes. I want to show you how Jesus does this over and over and over again. In the first chapter, Mark chapter 1, what we read months ago, verse 30, the Bible says, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately told him about her, and he came and listened to what he did. He took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. He didn't have to do that. He could have looked across the room and said, you're healed. Instead, he goes over, takes her by the hand and lifts her up. Look down in the same chapter at verse 40. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand, and what did he do? He touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Again, he could have just said, I will be clean. You didn't touch lepers. But he reached out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Jump down to chapter 3. Look at this summary statement in verse 10. For Jesus had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. The untouchables knew that Jesus could be touched. Jump down to the crowd gathered in chapter 5. Look at verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. This dad knew that if Jesus would just lay hands on his dying daughter, she would live. So Jesus heads toward the man's home. And remember what happened along the way? A woman with an issue of blood for 12 years had heard the reports about Jesus, came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. In the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 5, even as Jesus is being rejected in Nazareth, 
Mark writes, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And then after he touches five loaves of bread and two fish and they multiply into a meal for 5,000 plus people, listen to how this chapter ends. Mark chapter 6, verse 56. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Are you getting the picture here? Jesus does not keep his distance from people who need healing. Jesus comes to them. Where others walk away, Jesus walks toward. He pursues them personally and in tenderness, he touches them. And we, we read this in Hebrews in our church's Bible reading plan just recently. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, one of the classic Bible translations says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. And when you think about it, this is the essence of who Jesus is, right? Jesus is God in the what? In the flesh, God, not distant from us, but God who has come to us to take us by the hand. This is the gospel. You and I have sinned against God, are separated from God, deserve eternal separation from Him and judgment in hell. Yet God has come to us, not distant from us, He came to live among us, a life we could not live of no sin. And then even though Jesus had no sin to die for, he chose to die on a cross for whose sin? For our sin. He took our uncleanness upon himself. Died on a cross, three days later, rose from the grave so that anyone, anywhere, no matter who you are or what you have done, if you will turn from your sin and yourself and trust in Jesus, take his hand, he will cleanse you of all your sin and lead you into restoration with God for all of eternity. If you have never taken Jesus by the hand... Take him by the hand today. His hand is outstretched toward you right now. He's brought you here. This room, wherever you are, online, other rooms, he's brought you here to see his hand reaching out in your life. He loves you, desires to heal you forever spiritually. Jesus is the physical, personal, tender compassion of God. For all who trust in him. See his tender compassion. And then see his healing power. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. So yes, let's pause there. This is now the second time we've seen Jesus doing something like this. In Mark 7, you remember he spit and touched the tongue of a man with a speech impediment. Now he spits on the man's eyes. And we don't know why this was Jesus' preferred method. I'm guessing if you were blind and a man spit on your eyes and you could see, you would be okay with that particular method. So we don't know why, but... Clearly, it was a picture of power in him 
providing healing in them. This is a picture of power in Jesus to provide healing in a man's tongue and his ears in that story and of a man's eyes in this story. And this is exactly what God had promised centuries before. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4 through 6, God had promised his people, he would come to them. Listen to these words. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And we are seeing over and over again in the book of Mark, Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. Where he goes, the eyes of the blind are open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now, we'll actually talk more about this next week, Lord willing, but the picture in this passage is clear. The healing power of God is present in Jesus, which means... There is no disability, disease, sickness, scar, hurt, or heartache that is beyond the power of Jesus to heal. Can I just say that one more time? There is no disability, no disease, no sickness, no scar, no hurt, and no heartache that is beyond the power of Jesus to heal. Amen. Fear not, all who have an anxious heart. Behold, your God will come to save you. Yes. Now, that leads the third characteristic of Jesus I want you to see in this story, his sovereign timing. And this is where things get really unique. Up until now, this story has been very similar to other healing stories. But this time, Jesus asks the man a question, something Jesus doesn't do in other healing stories. He asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. In other words, I can see, kind of, but it's blurry. People look like trees. Now, we don't know if this man was born with sight and became blind so that he knew what trees looked like, or if he was born blind and had felt trees, had a sense for what they may look like. The point is, his sight was incomplete. He wasn't completely healed. And this is the only time we see this happen in a miracle story with Jesus. So what does he do? Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. The language here is basically saying his vision became perfect. From blurry to 2020, just like that, everything was clear. And Jesus sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. We'll talk more next week, 
about why Jesus gave that instruction. And we'll talk about what Jesus was doing intentionally in this two-stage healing to teach his disciples about spiritual sight. But for now, let's just acknowledge that this man's healing was not instantaneous. It took time. And Jesus was sovereign over that timing. It's not like Jesus was thinking, oh, I didn't use enough saliva the first time. I mean, get some more. <laughs> Sorry, that was not in the notes. So what's happening? Jesus was able to do this the first time. And here we see that God has given us a story in the Bible to show us that sometimes healing takes time. And sometimes healing feels incomplete for a time. And sometimes healing doesn't happen the way we expect or the way we desire. But that doesn't mean Jesus is not compassionate. And it doesn't mean that Jesus is not powerful. It means that Jesus is working in ways we don't see in that moment. And we can trust what he is doing in that moment and in what he will do beyond that moment. And that's where this particular story is so helpful to us. Because inevitably, any picture of Jesus and healing inevitably leads to questions. Why do I have this disability or disease or sickness or struggle in the first place? Why have I experienced this hurt or this pain for which I need healing? And why won't God just take it away? If he loves me, and if he has the power to do so. And think of people all across our church family who have all kinds of different struggles and have prayed for healing. And it hasn't happened at least not in the timing we desire. Sometimes even leading to the loss of people we love a lot. And I can't answer those questions. None of us can this side of heaven. But we can know this beyond the shadow of a doubt. Until Jesus comes back, one day every one of us is going to succumb to sickness, struggle, weakness, and death. We will all breathe our last breath. But for all who trust in Jesus, in the very next moment, he will take your hand Amen. and personally lead you home, where he will, with his own hands, wipe every tear from your eyes, 
and he will heal you. Mind, soul, and body completely for all of eternity, for the next 10 trillion ages and beyond. These are light and momentary struggles. In other words, in whatever comes to your mind when you think of healing, you can trust the tender compassion, the healing power, and the sovereign timing of Jesus. So as I was reflecting on this passage, I started thinking about different ways that we see Jesus bringing healing in our church family. And many different pictures in our church family came to my mind. So here's why marriage in particular came to my mind. I had all kinds of needs for healing. But marriage came to my mind because it's an example of healing that just doesn't happen like that. Right? The journeys these couples have walked on, it hasn't been instantaneous. This, this kind of healing takes time. And, and I just want us to lean in as we're about to pray for each other to the tender compassion of Jesus, the healing power of Jesus, and the sovereign timing of Jesus. And just to say together, we, we trust in you and to pray for each other in light of needs for healing in all of our lives. The same Jesus who did this in Mark chapter 8, the same Jesus who did this in these couples' lives is the same Jesus whose hand is outstretched toward you in your seat right now with whatever comes to your mind when you think about a healing. So would you bow your heads with me? I want to lead us into a time of prayer, and I, I want to do this in two stages, not to overdo the picture from this story, but two stages. Like First and foremost, I want to ask you, all across this room, other locations, online, first and foremost, have you experienced spiritual healing from Jesus? Have, have you asked God through faith in Jesus to cover over all your sins, forgive you of all your sins? Have you reached out your hand and said to Jesus, lead me as the Lord of my life? And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, then I invite you in the holiness of this moment, just to pray right where you're sitting and say, God, I need you to heal me of my sin. Just to say to him in faith, I believe Jesus came and died on a cross for my sin and he rose from the grave and today I trust in him to cleanse me of all my sin and to lead me, lead me as the Lord of my life. When you say that to God, this is a picture of you taking the hand of Jesus in your life. He promises to save you as you trust in him and to lead you as you trust in him. In this moment, you can experience 
spiritual healing for all of eternity. And then, flowing from that, I want to pray for all kinds of other healing across this gathering. So in just a moment, if, if you would say, I need some healing in my life, maybe it's physical, maybe it's mental, emotional, maybe it's relational, if you would just say, I, I need some healing, then in just a moment, I'm going to ask you just where you're sitting to raise your hand before God, just between you and God. And to the extent with which you feel physically comfortable to do so, just to keep your hand raised as a picture of you saying, I need you to take my hand amidst my need for healing. And I just want to pray over you as our hands are raised all across this room, other rooms, online. So if you would say, yes, I need healing in my life, would you just raise your hand where you are and keep it raised to the extent which you can physically be comfortable, but to, as a picture of you saying, God, I need you, Jesus, I need your tender compassion, your healing power, trust your sovereign timing. So God, you see all these hands around this room, other Rooms where we're gathered online, all kinds of different places. You see these hands, you know the healing. Every single one of these people need, you, you know our need for healing better than we know our need for healing. We confess there are things we need healing for that we don't even realize we need healing for. They're so deep. Some are so obvious at the forefront. So for all of it, God, we pray. And I just intercede. Much like in this story, you have people coming to Jesus, begging for Jesus to touch them. God, I am begging for you to touch them, for your tender compassion all across this gathering. And every single one of these lives right now, that they would know they are loved by you, that they are seen by you that they are not alone, that you are with them, that you are for them. You are not distant from them. God, may they know in this moment your tender presence with them, your compassion for them. And God, we pray for your healing. God, we boldly ask today for your healing in all kinds of ways. We trust you have power to instantaneously right now heal of disease. You have power to heal of disability. You have power to heal in, in intellectual, emotional ways, in relational ways. You have power to do that right now. We trust you do, God. And we would ask you to do it. In many of these circumstances, as many as possible, God, we ask, we desire that, please. The same time we ask for that, we know that you are wise, you are good, you are loving, you are Father in heaven, you give good gifts to those who ask, and so we trust your timing. We trust your timing. And so if you choose in your wisdom to not heal in this way or that way at this time, then God, we say we trust in you. We want you more than we want to be healed. So we pray for strength and peace and joy and help in the waiting. We pray for wisdom to know how to walk in the waiting and faith in you. We pray for faith 
on days when faith is hard to come by amidst these struggles. We pray that you would do, just like we heard in these stories, all the work that's needed in each of our hearts in the middle of all of this. Draw us closer to you. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. Be strength in our weakness. Be joy in our pain. Be hope in the middle of our hurts. And Jesus, we sure look forward to the day when we will see your face and you will take our hands and you will wipe tears from our eyes and we will be healed completely. Jesus, we praise you for coming to us, for dying for us, for rising from the grave, for the guarantee that all who trust in you, not just wishful thinking, the guarantee that one day we will have resurrected bodies and minds and hearts and we will be with you forever and ever and ever, that all of these struggles are light and momentary here compared to the surpassing eternal glory that is awaiting all who trust in you. We love you. We celebrate the hope we have in you. And we pray that you would help us to make the good news known of the tender compassion, healing power, and sovereign timing of Jesus in this city and among the nations, among people with all kinds of needs around us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. As we're going to see, God's glory is the weight of his character and attributes, the tremendous realities of God that we do not and cannot ourselves have. What is God's glory? What did God do with Moses when Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory? Turn to Exodus 33. This is a great passage to help understand the glory of God. Not in total, but part of it. When you think of the glory of God, those characteristics that we can never have on our own, that we never will have on our own, but are completely His. Then we can partake in it, as we're going to see. We can participate in it, which is amazing. Exodus 33, verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. That's a pretty straightforward prayer, isn't it? Show me thy glory. And he, speaking of God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I'm gracious and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock And it will come about while my glory is passing by it that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Show me thy glory. I'll make all my goodness pass by. And the Lord is gracious, compassion, his grace, his compassion, the attributes of God that are weighty. He's glorious. It's glorious. It speaks of his character, his goodness, his graciousness, his compassion, the weight of these things, which are eternally overwhelming. And notice, not only has he called us, and we'll look about this term called in a minute, called us, but it's by his own glory, and notice the term excellence. The word is arete in Greek. It speaks of that which is virtuous or excellent. It speaks of that which is worthy of praise. And it's in parallel with the idea of praise. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, and whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any arete, any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. In Peter's first letter, he speaks of the fact that we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light, that we might proclaim his arete, his excellencies. It's by God's glory and excellence, his tremendous character. Notice what our passage says that we've been called. Back to 2 Peter, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. His magnificent, praiseworthy character is the basis in which he called us, as we'll see, into a saving relationship. Why does he bring this in? Because it's by his 
excellencies and glories he calls us. And we're going to see it's by his excellencies and glories he gives us his magnificent promises. We're going to see it in a second. So we see that he called us. Do you know we were called? And we see this idea of being called in Scripture. Notice what the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we should always, verse 13, give thanks to God, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. That's how we grow. It's a summary. And it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We might gain the glory. We might become like him. We might become gracious. We might share in his attributes. We might share in the wonderful realities of this glorious God. We were called through the gospel. God called you into a relationship with himself through the gospel. We see it's through the gospel that we are called into a saving relationship. Galatians 1.6, we were called by the grace of Christ. We have a heavenly calling and a holy calling, Hebrews 3.1 and 2 Timothy 1.9. God who was faithful, who called us into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, 1 Corinthians 1.9. We were called into a relationship, fellowship with his Son. Tremendous reality through the gospel. Peter spoke in his first letter of the Holy One who called us. And in chapter 2, verse 9, we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light that we would proclaim his excellencies. You see, brother and sister, we used to walk in darkness. We were slaves of sin. We were blinded. We did not know where we were going. We loved darkness, yet God, through his Son, illumined our hearts concerning our sin and his Son, the Savior, through the gospel, that we might see the reality of that sin and trust in the glorious Christ. He called us out of darkness into a relationship with him. And that was done by his glory and excellence. Those characteristics of God, his goodness, his compassion, his grace that are worthy of praise. That's how he saved us, by his character. He did the things he did because he is who he is. So why would Peter share this at this point? Why would he share this section here about his glory and excellence? Because there's something else connected to his tremendous character besides our salvation. It's the means in which we are sanctified also, the word of God. Look at our passage. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us into a relationship with him by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Remember, verses 2 through 4 are going straight through. It's one thought with all kinds of sub-thoughts going straight through. He says, for by these, or you could literally translate, through which. Through what? Through his glory and excellence, he has granted us something else. Through his character of graciousness and compassion, his character of goodness. He has given something else, by the way. Same word granted, something that is bestowed by someone who is generous. He has granted us. What has he granted? His precious and magnificent promises. It's a done deal. It's already been granted. It doesn't say he's granting them, that he's still granting them. It's a done deal. 
Grammatically, verse 4 is connected to verse 3, which is connected to verse 2. We have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness to the true knowledge of him. And as we're going to see, this tremendous reality is in the context of his precious and magnificent promises. Verse 4, for by these, or through which, he has granted, done deal, bestowed upon us, and it affects us now, us, the us are believers, his precious and magnificent promises. Here he's clearly speaking of the word of God, but he is describing it in a way in which we ascribe the value that is due. We talk about God's word, but we don't talk about God's promises. What God says is faithful. What God says he will do. A promise is something spoken that is going to be accomplished. He has bestowed them gratuitously upon us. He has an overwhelming gift upon us. It's a completed action. And we have been granted his precious and magnificent promises. The word promises again stresses the reality of God is going to do what he says. We can bank on it. God's word is true and God is faithful to his word. And notice how these promises are described. First, they are described as precious. They're costly. They're of great value. Peter uses this word to speak of the blood of Christ in 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, right? And here he speaks of God's promises as precious, of immense value, immense value. Brother and sister, do you see God's promises as precious, his faithful word? Is it valuable in your sight? Do you seek it more than you seek gold and silver? Notice he also shares that his promises are not only precious, but magnificent. The term translated here is the Greek word magistos. We get the word megos. It just means large or great, but here speaks of the largest or the greatest They're the greatest. They're the greatest promises. They are magnificent. The greatest and most precious promises he has granted to us. Do you realize what God has promised us in his word? It is tremendous. It, as we will see, pertains to everything concerning life and godliness. Everything. The problem is faith, isn't it? Believing what God has said. Tremendous, magnificent promises. Very great. God's promises are precious and magnificent. Do you see them this way? Turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Solomon is trying to share with his son the right heart attitude towards the Word of God, and thus the God of the Word. The right heart attitude. You see, you get people who just have the Word, it's like a formula. The Scripture is a formula rather than a relationship with Christ where He works in our hearts. The Pharisees, they knew the word like you wouldn't believe, by the way. And Jesus said their table, that's where they put the word out on, had become their snare. They searched for the scriptures because they thought in them there was eternal life. But Jesus said, they point to me. It's about a relationship with Christ. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure what my commandments were within you, in your heart, Make your ears attentive. Listen, right, to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, you lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover what? The knowledge of God. 
If you have a right view towards the word of God, you're going to grow in your relationship and knowledge of the Lord. And he says there, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth. It's his words. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright and is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice, he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. Everything you need for life and godliness, right? And he says, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge, knowledge in the context of the knowledge of God through his word, right? Will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Brothers and sisters, we have been granted magnificent and precious promises. We have the faith delivered once for all to the saints. Peter in his final letter here acknowledges everything we need for our relationship with Christ is in the Word. The Apostle Paul made the same thing clear in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scriptures, written Word of God is inspired by God. And this was his final letter also. He was going to die, go to the Lord, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You see, bad guys, later on we'll see in Second Peter, are going to come along and divert you from the sufficiency of Christ and his word. That's what they're going to do. But Christ is sufficient. His word is sufficient. We have the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 1. And in Peter's last words, he says here, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. As we continue this marvelous passage, notice there's a purpose for these passages. There's a purpose for these promises. In the context, it's growing in the knowledge of Christ and his grace. But when we grow, we're going to be more like him. We're going to partake in his nature. Notice what it says. For by these, verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that, this is the purpose, by what? By them, in the context of a relationship with Christ, or not by themselves, by them, in order that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What does he mean by that? That we become God? Absolutely not. The term translated partakers comes from the Greek word koinonia. And it speaks of sharing. We share in his divine nature and consciousness. We share in his attributes of goodness and love and kindness and these things. We partake of who he is. We grow and are conformed into the image of Christ through the word of God. What did Peter say back in 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn back there. Actually, go to 1 Peter 1, 23. He talks about the reality of how God saved us. He used this living word. 1 Peter 1, 23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. God spoke it, and we were turned into new creations. We were saved. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, putting aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy and all envy and slander, hey, in Christ you can set it aside. You can choose to say no now and trust Christ. He says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may what? Grow in respect to salvation. 
become more and more like Christ, partake of his character. It's through the word of God we partake of the character of God. We become more like him. Tremendous. He uses it to equip us for every good work, to grow us in respect to salvation. And this is all in the context of the knowledge of Christ and relying on him by his grace. Now, as we finish, notice there is a qualifier here. He qualifies those who will partake. Notice what he says. In order that by them, that's the precious and magnificent promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Believer, if you're a true believer, you have already done deal. That's the term. You have escaped the corruption. Think of the term escape. It's a vivid word. You think of escaping. It's one being delivered from some type of peril or bondage, right? We have escaped through the blood of Christ. And notice he says, the corruption that is in the world by lust. The term corruption can speak of destruction or ruin. It's the corrupting influence of sin, which brings death. The ones who can partake, if they rely in Christ, abiding in him through his word, grow, those are those who have already escaped the corruption that is in the world. And what is it by? It's by lust. The word just means desire. It's the corrupting desires of sin. We see that. Christ saved us. We have escaped. And we are the ones now who have escaped who can become more like Christ. Tremendous statement. Tremendous reality. He's saying that by these promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. Tremendous passage. So then, a passage that is life-changing. I would say Christian life changing. If you're willing to see yourself rightly, if you're willing to humble yourself before God, if you're willing to allow him to correct you by his word, if you're willing to trust him in a relationship where you're abiding in him and trusting in him, you're going to grow in his grace, in dependence on him. Dependence on him. Brothers and sisters, do you see God's word in the context of a real relationship with Christ as everything you need, everything, totally sufficient. I venture to say a lot of Christians don't believe that in practice. And I could give you a list of examples, but I think we know. I challenge you to think about areas in your life where you're not seeing God's Word, and thus Christ, as totally sufficient. Where you're not relying on Him. You're not growing in His grace and growing in the knowledge of Him. God's desire for us is that his grace and thus peace be multiplied in the knowledge of him. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.